0: Hello, and welcome to the Gaily Planet, a podcast where two queer nerds talk about media we love. I am Lark Malachi Gray.
1: I'm Jesse Blount and welcome everyone to week one of summer camp with hashtag ruthless where we talk about movies that are so bad they're good <laughs>
0: <laughs> and movies that are bad on purpose also yeah um yeah welcome to welcome to camp everyone how's you how are you settling in do you like your bunk mates? I never went to camp. I don't think either of us ever went to camp. <laughs>
1: nope. Both of us have only been to a camp, which was itself already a sort of summer camp pastiche. Yeah.
0: So. Yeah. Yep. I think that makes us uniquely qualified for what we're doing.
1: <laughs> also that. So, yes, before we let everyone loose, um, we just have a couple of announcements. Uh we're doing a summer
0: live show. Woo! Woo <laughs> <laughs> We sure are. Our episode about Rocky Horror is gonna be recorded live. We're calling it Rocky Horror Live, but not like that. Mm. Because <laughs> we're not watching the movie live. We're talking about the movie live and it's gonna be the the funnest.
1: <laughs> yeah, so uh that will be July twenty-ninth. Time TBD
0: (laughs) on Zoom. Available to everyone.
1: Tickets will go on sale two weeks before. And if you are a patron, I will be doing a live watch on Patreon in our Discord uh, a week before the recording. So if there's ever a month you (laughs) want to join our Patreon, maybe July is it.
0: Heck yeah, patrons will also get early access to the tickets and they will get discounted tickets, so just saying this might be your moment. Um, yeah, and then just quickly, I'm going to rattle off. We're doing a review contest. Those of you who have been with us from the beginning, remember this from the early days of the Gaily Prophet. It's where we're like, hey, it's important that baby podcasts get reviews because then people listen to the podcasts. And so, out of the first 50 people who email us a screenshot of their review, 10 of you will get a sticker in the mail, and that'll be great and will make you happy. And you'll even get to choose between a Gailey Planet logo sticker and a Camp Ruthless sticker because choices are the spice of life I don't know because we <laughs> want you to have a choice yeah. um so do that leave us a review take a screenshot email us at hashtag ruthlesspods at gmail.com it does have to be a nice five star review yeah so
1: <laughs> please please keep that in mind that uh, say really nice things about us and we, and we will put you in the running to get free stuff
0: hmm um what movie are we starting with
1: we are starting with of course, the King of Filth himself, John Waters, 1994 film, Serial Mom, and my personal favorite John Waters movie.
0: Hell yeah. So, Serial Mom is the true story of Beverly Sutfin, a quintessential suburban wasp mom. She's living the beige dream with her dentist husband and her two kids, Misty and Chip, Except she has a secret obsession with serial killers and all things gory, a secret hobby of prank calling her neighbor, and soon develops another not very secret secret, namely that she murders everyone who bothers her, whether they're a fly in her kitchen or a woman wearing white shoes after Labor Day. (laughs) The movie follows her over the course of a week as she commits and is arrested for the murders of, in this order... Chip's teacher who insults her. Misty's not-boyfriend who's cheating on her. Some neighbors who interrupted her birding date with her husband. A woman who didn't rewind the tapes she returned to the video store where Chip works. Chip's boyfriend, Scotty, who saw her kill the video lady. (laughs) And in the final scene, one of the jurors who acquitted her of all the murder charges who has committed the aforementioned fashion crime of white shoes after Labor Day. The end.
1: Excellent. And for today's headline... Beverly Sutphin kills seven, inspires movie, Ryan Murphy miniseries, and scores of white lady podcasters <laughs> proclaiming the serial mom hashtag girl boss.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right, and so we're going to start off with the front page where we talk about everything that doesn't go anywhere else.
1: Uh, I just to start off with, as someone who does a lot of thrifting and estate sale shopping. Misty being like, can I get a dollar? I can get a dollar for this signed village people record and like selling this Pee Wee Herman doll. I was like, oh my God, I want both of those. They're both worth probably so much money now.
0: <laughs> oh my God. That Pee Wee Herman doll went for $150. Okay. At $158, okay. I think.
1: $94. Yeah, this is after he was arrested. So that makes sense to me.
0: Yeah. Um, I want to start by saying that that fly in the beginning was a paid actor. I... How long do you think they had to wait for it to land on each individual thing before they got the shots they needed?
1: Um, okay. You know what the funniest thing is? Is that I always read all of the, you know, trivia about the movie. And there is a thing about the fly,
0: actually. Amazing.
1: (laughs) Uh, that the ASPCA refused to allow an actual fly to be killed, so the di- so the archerator made a fake dead fly.
0: <laughs> That's bizarre. <laughs> no. That is so weird. <laughs> but it was a real fly that was like on the rib of the orange juice and stuff, right? Yeah. So they're just sitting there waiting for this fly to land on random things I to get their so. shots. Incredible.
1: Mm-hmm. Um... Misty's not boyfriend Carl looks 27.
0: <laughs> I think he probably is. <laughs> I thought he was like a high schooler. <laughs> They're in college. It's very confusing, but they are in college and assuming this movie is set in the year that it was released, yes, when Scotty gives his birthday to that club, he would be 22. I thought
1: that, I thought that was I thought he was faking it or has a fake ID, but I guess that does make sense
0: but i think they said someone else did they, they say chip was 22 chip chip is in high school cuz she cuz she murders in high school the college pta i don't know what that is but wait keep, seriously yeah she says that she says that what's his face carl goes to college with her I don't know what's happening because it's like an elementary school classroom, but it is the college PTA, which doesn't exist.
1: How have I how, how have I literally never noticed that? I was just like, oh man, Ricky Lake in high school and this photographer dude. I feel better about that now. Yeah, no, I they're
0: all adults. I don't <laughs> know. I don't know. It's so weird.
1: Maybe this actually makes it more relatable for Gen Z is that they're in their 20s and they're still living at home (laughs) i'm sorry this world does not allow you to afford to be able to live on your own everyone under the age of 30 yep all right
0: (laughs) oh it is um i feel like the idea of someone being able to not immediately recognize kathleen turner's voice is the least believable part of this (laughs) movie (laughs) right (laughs) yeah
1: um. Yeah, I yeah, because I was looking her up. I'm like, I know she is famous for being in a bunch of stuff, and I'm like, what else have I seen her in besides this? And it's literally, <laughs> who framed Roger Rabbit? Because she voices, of course, Jessica fucking Rabbit, and it's just like she's a very iconic voice. It is pretty unbelievable.
0: <laughs> yeah, I feel like someone with a like more feminine voice gets a cold and everyone immediately is like, ooh, you sound like Kathleen Turner. Like that is the person that you go to to like Yeah. feel like you sound husky today, you know?
1: Yeah. Uh okay, so the show you're familiar? Okay, so the show Hannibal is about sound to the lambs like Hannibal Lecter before he gets caught by like by the FBI, right? The show is very infamous for being very queer coded. The queers love that show. Um, <laughs> the unofficial tagline of the first season is "Eat the Rude" because all of Hannibal's victims are people he despises <laughs> mm-hmm. for various reasons. And I just that really came to mind because again, everyone Beverly kills is just people she's like, "How dare you do this?" Faux pas in my mind. Now I have to murder you.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm
1: just like this is the she's. A people for the pettiest shit it's so funny yeah that's all
0: i love that you started that with you're familiar with hannibal as if in any world that would be true of me
1: (laughs) that's why i had to be like
0: (laughs) yeah run you through what (laughs) the show is about a little bit i appreciated it so i watch everything with subtitles sometimes you get brief moments of joy from things that people do in subtitles. For instance, when Beverly is in the college PTA meeting, (laughs) she brings this dude a fruitcake, and she says, bon appetit, and the subtitles say, bidding good appetite in French.
1: Wow. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Also, why did I not know what that means? (laughs) That's pretty funny, though.
0: It's like, I feel like all, like, American English speakers are familiar with the term Bon Appetit as something that you say before someone eats a thing, whether or not you know what it means in French. Like, we know that. But these subtitles do not trust us to know that. And that brought me so much joy.
1: That's really funny. Um... I don't know why this brings me so much joy, but like Beverly's friendship with her local garbage dudes where she's like, let me bring you some shooters so I can sort of, I mean, part of it is, is to manipulate them to like, not, you know, cause she has like evidence in the trash, but also them all just being like, wow, it's so garbage that your neighbor doesn't recycle. <laughs> so funny
0: to me. Um, they are my next thing too. Like their passion for their work and their industry and like their genuine joy to connect with her because she shares that passion i like, i love it so much i love them so much they might be my favorite characters in the movie
1: i mean i, I love you know always love people respecting that uh working class blue collar life so mm-hmm. especially your garbage people yeah like i'm kind of like yeah why not bring him some shooters
0: <laughs> I mean maybe maybe not encourage them to drink them while driving a garbage truck. Yeah. I saw someone get run over by a garbage truck one time. It was terrible. Oh my god. Yeah, it was really bad.
1: <laughs> so, bring bring <laughs> gifts to your sanitation workers that aren't alcohol.
0: A little cupcake, for instance, or, mm-hmm. you know, you know she has like a whole refrigerator full of beautiful desserts in there.
1: Yeah. She has them in the freezer because once you defrost a cake that's well wrapped, no, no one knows, and that's how all wedding cakes are essentially. Good to know. Is
0: it me? Um, Yeah, we shared that one, but I think, sure, yes, go.
1: Like a true '90s child, the scenes of the video store that Chip works in—I'm just like, I think I can, I can like imagine how that smells, and I'm just like, oh my god.
0: Yes, oh, it's a dream. It's wild. I feel like just like randomly, maybe like three months ago, Evan and I were walking dogs and I just had like the mental scent memory of a blockbuster. Like it wasn't even like I smelled something in the world that reminded me of it. I just like thought of it and was like time travel. <laughs> like it's such a specific smell. Yeah. Although his video store looks cooler, like a local one.
1: Yeah. Fun fact, it is, at the time, it was the video store that John Waters frequented in Baltimore.
0: Oh, cute.
1: I know. I
0: love that. I love how much he loves Baltimore.
1: I know. I hope it's still there. It might not be, but... It's probably not.
0: (laughs) Uh, My next one is just, like, I love the line where rosemary is talking to the cops about the like blood on uh beverly's shoe and says it was gore hanging there like a runny nose i really like it it's incredible
1: um i'm obsessed with the very obvious reference to the short story lambs to the slaughter when beverly is like i don't need to knife this lady who didn't rewind videotapes i can just bash her in the head with this leg of lamb
0: i don't know that short story
1: okay uh raw doll it's like a raw doll like adult short story where this woman kills her husband with a leg of lamb and then roasts it creates her own alibi the cops come by they don't suspect a thing she feeds the leg of lamb to the cops That is the story in a nutshell, and I feel like this is a clear reference to that. Yeah, definitely.
0: Oh man, his short stories are so good. Yeah, this is my last thing here because I put a bunch of stuff that could have been here in editorials, so that I would have things in editorials. (laughs) Um, Which is that I got the impression that Betty Sterner was more upset about there being a mouse on her foot than there being scissors in her gut. Does that feel true to you?
1: <laughs> it definitely does. It really 110% like it. <laughs> does. You are correct. <laughs> uh, all right. So the scene in the bar hammerjack is like my favorite scene in this movie for various reasons. But as an adult watching this, the fact that this concert is jam-packed is taking place presumably at like one in the afternoon on a Sunday why aren't there more punk concerts happening at 1 p.m on a Sunday <sighs> that sounds great go to the show you get out it's like three o'clock it's still daylight <laughs> you can go home and make dinner I'm like this is honestly the best part of this is like these people are at a, a cool concert in the middle of the
0: afternoon <laughs> yeah oh my gosh you're so right I would go to so many more concerts if that were true and it wasn't a pandemic.
1: Yeah. I mean, yes, obviously giant asterisk if there if it was safe <laughs> to do so. Um, but I really think I honestly think it'd probably be cooler for magicians to not have to be up until four AM too. It's like play in the afternoon, everyone go home.
0: <laughs> for real. welcome to the style and fashion section where we talk about aesthetics um i only have two things here i don't know but my first one is with so many exclamation marks the sexy tooth in the office
1: oh my god that like pop art tooth
0: yeah and but it like looks like i don't know if you noticed it has like a butt and like the the little things, whatever, roots look like sexy woman legs. Like it is a, it is very much a like sexy tooth. My (laughs) God. I know, it made me so happy.
1: (laughs) I, yeah, I was like taking notes, but I noticed that because that pop art tooth, I was like, oh my fucking God, that's incredible. Where do I get a copy of
0: that? I know, it's so good.
1: It wouldn't surprise me if it was made specifically for this movie, honestly. Uh, Which we'll talk about later in this episode about why I think that. Um, I have a few things. Uh, First off, I'd like to talk about Birdie because every one of her dyke 90s outfits is a dream. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Um, But my, especially just like when we first, well, okay, two things stand out is her when we first meet her and she's wearing like an oversized flannel shirt over, an over another oversized shirt and then wearing a like fucking jughead from Archie Beanie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like that is not how heterosexual girls look.
0: <laughs> 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 no. <laughs> no, not at all. I yeah, I assume that Birdie is a bisexual. That's my because at first I was like that is a lesbian. But then I was like, mm, I don't know. She does seem genuinely interested in, I'm reading Chip and Scotty and Bertie as being a thruple. I think we're supposed to. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, Yeah. Yeah, she seems genuinely into that relationship. So I'm like, you can be bisexual. I'm open to that.
1: Yeah. Um. Yeah, her second look that is definitely, I feel like, screams very queer is uh her her church look is a black cardigan with a, like, really cute red. It has, like, stripes. I don't know what's going on with her dress. But she's also wearing, they look kind of like, they're not quite Doc Martens, but something very adjacent to that. And I'm like, you are wearing Doc Martens, black Doc Martens with your black sweater to church. You are a bit, you, you're a bit queer. That's just yeah
0: yeah. yeah. My 100%. Um, yeah, the only other thing I have here is just, When it's not like curled and done up for a thing like court or church, Bev's hair is like fucking gorgeous. The like the way it moves, the length, it's so perfect. I don't know. I was like most hair in the especially for like moms in the early 90s was a nightmare, but she has it extremely going on. Ten out of ten, it's so so good.
1: I know she looks great, and she's just wearing like preppy mom outfits the entire time, and you're just like, you. I mean, of course, Kathleen Turner is like stunning, yeah. <laughs> so it's like yeah. surprise. Um, I also love everything that Mink stole, who plays the character that Beverly is harassing via the phone. Um, all of her looks are great, but <laughs> she wears this very outrageous looking Versace looking couch print like it looks like a tapestry print essentially when it's when she's in the woman who doesn't recycle's house mm-hmm. and she's when it's, it's like it's like teal and like purple and just it's incredible it's an
0: incredible it
1: <laughs> yeah and then i think my last thing is just suzanne Summer showed up at the end of this movie <laughs> in the most 90s outfit. Uh, listener, she is wearing a full length brown mink coat with a T shirt and a black cowboy hat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it like should not work, but it does, and it is yep. also so nineties.
0: Yeah. <laughs> to court too, I feel like <laughs> that's
1: important. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, she looks amazing.
1: It's such it's such it's such a statement. It's such a bold look. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Welcome to the essay section where we talk about our history and relationships with this movie and maybe with John Waters broadly. I don't know. Jesse's going to go first.
1: Probably a little bit with John Waters. Okay, so this is... This is the first John Waters movie that I ever saw. Uh, I saw it in theaters in 1994 when I was nine
0: <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. um and i feel like it really warped slash shaped me as a person <laughs> so thanks <laughs> thanks john waters um because i feel like shortly after that i really i was like why did i love serial killers so much in my like pre-teen and teen years and i'm like i think it's because of this movie <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like i'm pretty sure this kickstarted my interest in like reading up about serial killers and like sensationalist murder stuff and and i think and i mean like later on i become a much i become a much more bigger horror fan but like always still interested in horror so i feel like chip <laughs> as a teen i'm like a little bit like chip as a teen which i feel like explains a lot
0: <laughs>
1: uh-huh. <laughs> um but yeah this still remains uh and i've seen almost every john waters movie that you can that is available to see um, and this is still my favorite one
0: <laughs> nice <laughs> I know you said you had like a lot to say about this so I, I want to just make sure that there's like space for
1: oh I guess I I guess I, I had a lot I had a lot of written but I guess that really was it um, yeah I mean I think this really kicked off my true crime thing which makes sense because John Waters himself loves true crime and like he's like if you hear him speak he often talks about going to criminal trials, like murder trials is like a just like to watch them like he himself is also interested in the sort of sensationalism of what we now call true crime but like sort of contemporarily like was not really a thing yet mm-hmm. so but yeah this is <laughs> definitely i think one of my queer roots in a way that makes just a lot of sense
0: mm-hmm. yeah it does Um, Yeah, this was my first time watching this movie. Historically, so like my first John Waters movie was Cecil B. Demented that I saw when I was like 14 and loved and watched all the time.
1: It's also a good one.
0: Yeah, I think I had it on VHS. So (laughs) I, um, (laughs) I don't think I've seen it since I stopped having a VHS player. It's probably been since I was like 18. And then I... I think like a lot of people, a lot of, you know, queer weirdos was at like a house party and everyone was like, let's watch Pink Flamingos. And then we were all like, we're babies. We don't want to watch Pink Flamingos, Um, which I've heard from a lot of people who were like, tried to watch that as a teen, was extremely scarred, didn't finish it. And then I like didn't, I think I was like afraid because like the people that I knew who did finish Pink Flamingos and like really liked it were people that were into things that I like cannot handle, like horror and things that are upsetting so I hadn't seen anything but Cecil B. Demented and Crybaby for like years and then I watched Hairspray and loved it and then I watched this that's like it and I need to fix that obviously but yeah I feel like this movie was really fun I didn't love it We can talk about that more in editorials because I have a lot of feelings about it. But, like, there was a lot, obviously, that was great. And I want to talk more about, like, the courtroom scene later because I think, like, the ending of this movie is so strong. Like, the last 20, 30 minutes, I just had, like, the biggest grin on my face the entire time. Um, I think it has a lot to offer. I think it could have more to offer and I think that that's Kathleen Turner's fault and we will talk about that in editorials yeah. so yeah uh,
1: this is very funny I, I think the second job Water movie I saw was Pink Flamingos uh, me and some friends used to watch it all the time when I was 19 which also I think explains a lot about me and I did see Cecil be Demented because I rented it on Netflix and they sent me the DVD
0: <laughs> nice <laughs>
1: Which feels almost as dated as you watching it on VHS as a teenager.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, I want to watch that again. It's been so long.
1: I would watch that again. I remember really enjoying it. It's very ridiculous. And I don't know. It's just, it's fun. I remember it being just very fun. Yeah. Yeah. Good times.
0: Welcome to the politics section where we talk about things that are fucked up.
1: Should we maybe start off talking about, like, what is being satired here and then kind of go from there?
0: I would like to get my shortest point out of the way so then we can just have that conversation without... So... Just you know the fact that you like can't make it through a '90s movie without like some casual transphobia. I was not expecting it in a John Waters movie. I was not happy about it.
1: Yeah, I like. Uh, I was like, I like. I like wince. I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> That's how how I serious? felt.
0: It's <laughs> like I should be safe here. Like, why? Why is this here? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I was also pretty bummed out. I'm like, I didn't. I'm like, of course, the other movie I don't look up on did the dog die? I'm like, this will be fine. It's John
0: Waters. But they don't even have a transphobia category. Like, would this be on there? I guess it could be filed under like men in dresses, but that's the closest thing to like, is this movie transphobic that they have on that website? Yeah. Someone go add the transphobia category. It's a user generated platform, someone can add it.
1: Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I was also deeply upset by that. I'm just like, come I know. on, dude.
0: Literally anything else, you know? Yeah. Yeah, but the only other thing besides that that I have is what you were talking about, like the social commentary type stuff. So go ahead and kick that off.
1: Um, I always want to start off with that. I think like many a queer filmmaker, this is on step one of the layers down. Is this is in fact making fun of suburban living. Yes. Cause it's like everything's so like right, beige and just waspy and no one would ever suspect this like wasp mom is like murdering people. And it's like really <laughs> But yes. I mean like that's like that's like the first level of this movie.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Which
1: is I mean just Making fun of the suburban nuclear family.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: But I also think like the the layer, the next layer of that is she is getting away with a lot because she's like a quote unquote nice white lady, which we see a lot. IRL all the time. Obviously, your various Karens calling the police to... Whenever a white dude commits a crime, it's always a picture of him skiing with his family, even if he murdered his family, for right. instance. a uh, thing it literally happened in the past, like, couple of months. Yeah. Um, and that this movie is just really making it, is, like, taking that to, like, the most outrageous conclusion where everyone's like, man, we really love Beverly. We're really going to buy these t-shirts and, like, read her book because, like... She's just so nice and relatable to other white people, <laughs> other white ladies. <laughs> just
0: like interesting. So I felt like her getting acquitted was the like she's just so nice and relatable, but that the like selling of the t-shirts and the books was commentary on like our appetite for true crime and like, you know, getting joy and satisfaction out of reading about the pain of others like i don't think that i feel like that one was the like what's up with people being obsessed with you know ted bundy and the like she's been acquitted of all charges was the like nice white ladies can get away with literally murdering six people
1: i mean yes you are right those are like two separate things And, like, this is, like, really interesting because this is really basically almost, like, predicting the sort of mainstreamification of true crime that we've seen in the past, like, 15 years, especially with, like, the uncountable amounts of, like, true crime podcasts. Because, like, in the 90s, I mean, you had, right, you had, like, pulp paperbacks about Charles Manson and other serial killers. And there's this, like, this white lady writer, Anne Rule, who, like, made an entire career of writing about true crime, essentially. And she started off because she knew Ted Bundy at, like, they're, like, volunteering somewhere together. And she's like, oh, this nice young man, I can't believe he murdered, like, 80 women. <laughs> and, like, I honestly, part of what made, I think what what attracted people to that book is someone being like, wow, I can't believe this nice, this nice, handsome young man just was secretly a murderer. I had no mm-hmm. idea, you know? And, like, that was a bestseller. And, like, that made... Anne Rule. I mean, she's, I guess she's not as big now, but like in the nineties, I read, like my mom would buy those books. So I read a bunch of them. And of course, as a weirdo who's into like true crime (laughs) because of this movie, I was like, yeah, oh, okay. Anne Rule, tell me all about it. Um, but it really isn't until very recently for me where I'm just like, actually, true crime's real fucked up. You guys, (laughs) like the industry of true crime is fucked up. And I think, the way that it's like mainstream, because even in this movie, it's like, oh, Chip and his friends are weirdos flecking horror, like slasher movies. And like, it's weird that Beverly as like a white housewife is reading like uh, Helter Skelter, which was written by a lawyer who uh, worked on the Charles Manson case.
0: I've read Helter Skelter, weirdly.
1: I have also read Helter Skelter and was kind of like, the legal side actually was much less interesting to me than the sort of like, true crime part, which is like fucked up. Yeah, Um, and I acknowledge that, but like now, that's not seen as a like, oh, what a weird red flag for this like nice suburban white lady to enjoy true crime. And I think that with bringing true crime into the mainstream, it really, it really highlights how sort of exploitative for people who this is like the worst thing that happened in their lives or to their families. And it's like, man, people are going to conventions and are really. Being all about the police and the FBI because of true crime. That's like, "Mm, the political implications of this are not great.
0: That's, yeah, I think that's really interesting. And we get that really great. Like, what's his face? Carl's brother comes and is like, your mom murdered my brother. Mm -hmm. And then Chip is like, did you sell your rights? And the dude's like, oh, yeah, I'm totally fine now. yeah, because I always get sort of confused when people are like, true crime, it's a new thing. I'm like, I was watching America's Most Wanted and like a million Discovery Channel like mini documentaries about murder and whatever. And like every fucking newspaper or not newspaper, m- magazine was talking about, I don't know, Scott and Lacey Peterson and John Bonnet Ramsey for like my entire childhood. Yeah. So it's like this has been in the public consciousness, but I feel like your point about people capitalizing on it and the way that they are now is sort of the major shift that's happened and the fact that this movie predicted that so profoundly is pretty incredible.
1: You want something even more wild? Yes. So they they finished this movie It was like either in production or was shortly about to come out right before like the O.J. Simpson trial happened, Mm. which I mean, for our younger listeners, Ryan Murphy has a whole miniseries about this. I mean, several podcasts have done a deep dive into sort of the court case and the sort of media like literal media circus that was this case, which like is pretty straightforward, like an abusive dude murdered his wife and the collateral of, like, his wife's friend and got away with it because he's, like, super famous and could afford to buy a whole team of lawyers to say that he didn't do it, essentially, mm-hmm. in a nutshell. And, like, that was the kind of media circus that, like, this the second half of this movie essentially is. <laughs> you know, like, the sort of spectacle of it. And mm-hmm. I'm just, like, Wa- like John Waters' <laughs> actual prophet, <of> actual <laughs> Cassandra of, like, predicting the future. <laughs> So yeah, yeah, and so I think the fact that like the the trial itself is sort of like a farce and is a lot of like manipulation of the truth and of evidence is wild. But I'm also like, that's kind of what happens to like sensationalized cases too. For instance, like the O.J. Simpson trial, or like I'm sure any number of things that like has been on unsolved mysteries, right? Which has been on since like '93, right. <laughs> Or Law and Order, which has been on since 89. Right. (laughs) By the way, like, yeah, like, true crime fandom isn't new. I just think that it just has exploded in a way where I'm, like, really highlights the sort of flaws of it all. Mm -hmm. And I think that another thing that this movie gets really well that I think gets lost in true crime media is that... And I'm saying this is someone who has read and consumed a lot of true crime slash serial killer media. Um, serial killers in general, all of even like a lot of the famous ones, are like misogynistic losers who often don't get caught for a long time. Not because they're quote unquote geniuses, but because cops are terrible at solving murders. Like you could look up statistics of murder crime rates across the country; they they fucking suck. Yeah. And like in this movie is a surprisingly good example of this where Beverly kills like 5 or 6 people before she gets caught. She's not wearing gloves, she's not wearing like rubber boots, like there is evidence that she has been in these places. And it takes until her 6th kill where she literally murders a kid in a concert venue yes. <laughs> in front of the police for them to arrest her. It's outrageous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And this is kind of just, like, once you peel away the sort of uh, myth building around serial killers, like, this is often just what it is. It's, like, cops are being incompetent, and um, and unlike Beverly, serial killers are often going for people that the cops don't consider humans, like sex workers, or brown people, or queer people, or queer black people. And they're they're just, like, nothing's wrong. Everything is fine. And it's, like... No, you stuck at your job.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Listeners who haven't seen the movie, before she commits her first double murder, the cops are like tailing her because they suspect her. And she like they lose her because she like drives across a lawn and like cuts a corner and then goes and murders two people. And the cops just like, I lost her. And you're like, Yeah, you did.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay yeah and I mean, and I will say that one of the best true crime podcasts I think out there actually literally addresses this. It's called in the dark, and the first season is about a really well known a, a kind of infamous and true crime like disappearance and murder of a child, and I think like halfway through. Before it aired, making the podcast, they caught this guy after, like, 35 years. Mm. And it turns out that he wasn't this, like, genius. He, like, did all this shit that, like, should have gotten him caught. But the cops just did a really bad job. Like, across the board, fumbled the bag. And this dude went on to, like, unfortunately, to, like, hurt other children and probably murder other children, too. Because he just, you know, went 34 years about not being caught because mm-hmm. the cops went after a, like... Faggy seeming teacher because they're like, you seem suspicious. Um, and it's like that that dude didn't do shit. You guys right. are stuck at your job.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I mean, not to mention, of course, the hundreds of cases of black people being put away for crimes they literally did not commit and like right. not being able to get free because white people are racist. And it's just right. like this is the sort of the underbelly. Like, this is sort of what's really happening underneath true crime. But people want to dress it as, like, oh, man, like, this guy was so smart. and He really avoided the police. And, like, it took some, you know, it took some, like, dogged police work to get it. It's like, was that dude a white dude and maybe a right. cop? Is that what happened?
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. He avoided the police by, like, putting on a trench coat and some sunglasses and, like, walking by.
1: Yeah. <laughs> like... And one of, like, the biggest sort of true crime... Catches of like the past five years, ten years. Oh my god, what is time? It is the Golden State Killer or the Golden State Strangler, whatever that dude was? He was a cop.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And I feel like half of the unsolved mystery episodes that me and Nicole watch, it's like, oh, this dude was friendly with the police. His brother was a cop. He was like in with the sheriff. No one knows how his wife, where his wife went. And I'm like, he killed his wife. It's yeah. Like, I'm not a police officer, <laughs> and I'm like. <laughs> it sounds like y'all didn't do your jobs very well or it's like the cops accidentally threw out evidence because it's like this looks like a suicide throw away the evidence i'm like what are you doing
0: yeah for real
1: anyway this has been my defund the police rant um but all of which to say that so many things in this movie that would seem satirical aren't (laughs) for me
0: (laughs) yeah Also, so yeah, another one that is on my list is the commentary on the Christian right that we get. We get a ton. I mean, overall, we get a lot of like commentary on, you know, the judgment of like consumption of horror or even the consumption of true crime as being like weird or other in the form of people being really pro-death penalty and also in the form of like shot after shot after shot of people eating meat Yeah. in this way that's like very I mean some of it's really grotesque like the people eating the chicken but I feel like every like every murder is in some way paired with like someone like cutting meat or eating meat or serving meat and it feels almost like I don't know if John Waters is a vegan who knows but it almost feels like what's the difference Is kind of the vibe that comes across is, oh, Chip is fucked up for enjoying watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But here you are with this leg of lamb that you're carving up and, you know, putting on a sandwich or whatever.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I actually was thinking about that because the... Honestly, the most viscerally uncomfortable parts of this movie are the scenes of people eating meat. Like, that chicken-eating scene is like... I, like, had to look away, honestly. Yeah, it's
0: really (laughs) intense. It's like,
1: oh. oh." Um. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, people have been trying to say forever that video games and horror movies are really influencing kids to, like, murder each other or whatever. And it's like... If you look into it, number one, it's often white supremacy. <laughs> right. Like the the Columbine kids were Nazis, like neo-Nazi white supremacists. Like that that's why they did, not because they were bullied. People bullied them because they were racist as fuck. In Colorado, right. that's saying something. The other thing that Americans conveniently love to forget is that people all over the world have seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre, have seen basketball diaries have access to halo and all kinds of gun and games that people are shooting one another guess what those people don't do mass murder each other
0: <laughs> right <laughs> Turns exactly. Out.
1: and i'm like hmm i wonder what if that if you so if you take away that what is the deciding factor in the u.s that is causing i don't know angry white dudes to kill people it's like guess it's really not the matrix or the basketball diaries after all is it?
0: right right Yeah, yeah. And I feel like I lost my my second point that I was trying to make earlier, so I want to make sure I don't lose it. But so with the capital punishment conversation, which is chronic and low-key throughout the entire movie, which is amazing, love it, is we get this, like, the church sermon that they go to is capital punishment and you. And (laughs) the preacher, priest, I don't know, is talking about how if Jesus didn't want capital punishment, he would have condemned it from the cross. It's incredible. And it's like funny and it's satire, but I would not be surprised to see a news commentator from Fox News giving that exact speech and meaning it.
1: Oh, no, I would also not. I'm like, that could have been ripped from the internet today.
0: Yeah. So speaking of like John Waters, literal prophet, it's just like I know we've seen what's happening now, building since Reagan, but like, or I guess the Christian right was really Bush, right?
1: I mean, it did it did start. I mean,
0: Bush was the first family values yeah. presidential campaign. So yeah. they,
1: they've always they've, all, they've always been here.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, 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 yeah. But like, they gained the political power that they have when running as a like family values politician became the thing that yeah. Republicans do. So yeah. whatever. So we've like watched this building, but getting from the point of this is satire to this is literally what's happening just makes it really wild that like in 1994 I don't know, that was that was satire. That was a funny unrealistic thing for a preacher to be. <laughs>
1: makes sense to me considering how much the christian right has since the 70s built a platform on hating gay people Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know and i mean this is 94 like john waters lost a lot of folks to the you know aids crisis and you know just you know being an, an out queer person has been hard so Winnie agrees. Winnie does agree. So, I guess it's, it just feels like, maybe for him at this time, it's like this is only just thinly veiled satire, which really just shows that the Christian right has had this exact playbook for decades. Like, this, yeah. is, like the, what they're doing isn't new. <laughs> right.
0: The power that they have is, yeah. has become uh, incrementally yeah. so it's like, not like it Bloomed into being as new, but like the pitch that it's at has been building.
1: Yeah, I mean, it took it took them decades to get to where we are with how gentrified to fuck every voting area in this country is. I mean, not Jerry. Did I say gentrified? I meant gerrymandered. Yeah, I mean, basically the same thing. Like that took decades of them slowly creeping in until it's like, oh wait, shit, gerrymandering is an issue, and it's like, yeah, it's. Kind of too late, but yes, it is a huge
0: It's not too late. Just ban it.
1: Yeah. So yeah. Gay people are sacred. That's that we're gonna end this. Hell yeah. (laughs) We are very clear truth tellers. (laughs) Um, and you would not think that from a movie about a serial killing mom.
0: welcome to editorials where we rant about stuff um okay so i want to start off i think by talking about the reasons that i don't love this movie so that we can move on to fun stuff from there Yeah, sounds good okay so i was processing i watched it last night and then was like i'm not sure And then I thought a lot about it and then I watched it again today and I feel the same way. I think I've come to some conclusions. So I think, especially after watching it today, I think that the bones of this movie and by the bones, I mean, the literal script is amazing. Like this movie could be a 10 out of 10 for me. I think that primarily Kathleen Turner, but also kind of, and maybe because of her, a lot of the other actors are not delivering the movie in a way that is campy. So for me, what that does is makes it sad. (laughs) And I read, I think like a Roger Ebert review that said something really similar. That was like, her delivery makes me feel bad for her as opposed to making this funny. (laughs) And like because okay, so I think that I pulled a line that I think sums it up specifically, where god damn it, what is her husband's name? I just keep wanting to call him Saul Bernstein, which is Grace and Frankie. Um her husband is like, your mother may have some problems, which like in a movie where this is performed really can't be is like a hilarious understatement, right? But the way that it is that she's playing it here. Like that feels just true where you're like, she's ill. Like she's really struggling. And like her lawyer was right. She, she is clinic, like legally insane and should not go to prison for what she's doing. Yeah. I feel like, I don't want to say any other actor, but like another actor would have given us this in a way where she came across so much more, Like over the top psychotic in the like campy fun meaning of that word, where it didn't, where I didn't feel like, oh, like you have like early onset dementia or something like that, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Maybe more like scenery chewing, like Disney villain than what we get.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think she's like really acting as opposed to. It's, I don't know. I just feel like she's acting like it's a different kind of movie than mm-hmm. it is. And I, when I imagine the scenes again performed differently, the way that I feel about them changes profoundly. <laughs> and I'm like, I want that version. I want the version where someone is playing this really over the top so that she doesn't feel at all like a relatable character or someone who, who genuinely has some problems and, like, needs the help and care of her family, you know? Yeah.
1: No, that actually, that does, that does make sense. Um, Yeah, I guess I was also trying to, like, figure out in my watch today, like, what, what was making the sort of acting feel sort of uneven. And I think, so I think you're right about the way that Kathleen Turner is acting this. And, I mean, it doesn't, for me, it doesn't detract from the way that I like this movie, but I think that is, like a very reasonable critique of what is going on um yeah there's actually a pretty hilarious list of people who were offered this role um a lot of people turned it down because of the script and because of john water's reputation and i think he had actually initially envisioned uh so one of the things that he initially envisioned this going to susan sarandon which would have she would have played that the way that Like, it would have just been, you could have just been like, wow, this is Janet post-Rocky Horror, where she tried to pretend nothing happened, and then 15, and then like 10, 15 years later, becomes a serial killer.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that would have been amazing.
1: But she did not want to do this movie. (laughs) That's fair. It was, it was either like, didn't want to do because of the script, or like, because for the 90s, it had like a mid-range budget, but like, for someone... Like, Susan Sarandon in 93 still would have been not enough money.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think what you said about the acting feeling uneven, too. One of the things that I noticed is that in the beginning, when she's making the prank call, and at the end, when she's doing her whole court thing, those moments feel like what I wanted from the rest of the movie. Like, the energy and the, like, bigness of the way she acts those scenes is, like... Yes, if you were bringing this to everything, it would be a completely different movie. And I think maybe that's what you mean when you talk about like it feeling uneven is that there are these moments where it's like pure camp. And then there's like this long section in the middle where it's sort of like this very, very sick woman is like unable to control herself when faced with the most minor like inconveniences or perceived slights. Yeah. (laughs) You know? But the scene where she makes that prank call is my second rant because it <laughs> brings me so much fucking joy. Like, unbelievable.
1: Yeah, I, I think I just laugh so hard when she's like prank calling Minkstall and <laughs> Mink Still is like losing. Yeah. Is just freaking out. Yeah. Um, And it's obviously the kind of thing that would never go he- now because everyone has caller ID essentially. <laughs> but I'm just...
0: You can you could block your calls. I don't know if you were a big prank caller in the '90s. I was. Um,
1: I w- I was not, but I always sort of wanted to. I guess you know.
0: But. Yeah, we didn't do very particularly interesting prank calls, but it was like a sleepover go to make a couple prank calls, but you, there was like a, what, star four seven or something like that would make it so that you showed up as an unknown caller on caller ID. hmm So.
1: Yeah. I think about that now whenever I hear, oh my God, what's my age again on the classic rock station, which already makes <laughs> me feel like I'm <laughs> halfway to the grave. But I'm like, wow, kids are not going to know what the fuck star 69 in caller ID. They're just like, what? Yep. <sighs> I guess my only editorial here is I was just sort of imagining what this could would look like now, mm. which is, of course, that, like, Beverly would go to true crime conventions and listen exclusively to, like, true crime podcasts, and it would be that very old TikTok sound where someone's just, like, eating, like, a bowl of cereal, and it's like, oh, her, nah. her legs are cut off, and her arms are cut off, and her eyes were cut off, and it's just like, that is what beverly would do and i think that it wouldn't be the same sort of red flag that they have it the cops go on the stands like we found these books about serial killers in her trash and it's just like she would just follow every true crime paraphernalia paraphernalia reseller on instagram
0: yeah totally
1: (laughs) and it wouldn't be weird (laughs) Mm -hmm. it wouldn't be it would sorry it wouldn't be a red flag and it's just i don't know
0: very funny to think about, I guess. Yeah, TV. yeah. Okay, so I read that Misty is like the OG millennial because she says this line: "Carl makes me happy, and that threatens this family." And I was like, "This feels like a like 2020 thing to say." I cannot believe that is in this movie from 1994.
1: <laughs> I I love I love Misty played everyone by Ricky Lake. Pre-The Ricky Lake show, I believe. And I mean, number one, of course, love seeing a fat lady be desirable and it not be a joke. Like nothing about her having this like hot. Well, the first guy isn't hot, but like having like two dudes interested in her, you know, is played for laughs. And like the dude, the, the photographer and her eventual photographer boyfriends, like, I love taking photos of you. And I'm like, mm-hmm. this is great. <laughs> Um, uh, and often really seen in John Waters' film since he has a lot of fat people that he has worked with in the past, at least,
0: yeah, I think every movie that she is in, she is sort of portrayed as the same sort of like sex pot, everyone wants her character, like even in Crybaby, where she's pregnant, the whole movie, literally everyone is like thirsting after her, you know, yeah,
1: and I mean Ricky like looks incredible, oh <laughs> like... yeah, absolutely,
0: <laughs> um, she's just uh not. 1990s Hollywood hot? Not at all. But yeah, she's she's amazing. I love her so much.
1: Also, her her commitment to the SWAT meet also feels very contemporary.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Where I'm like, I want to be at the SWAT meet. <laughs> yeah,
0: she's so cool. <laughs> yeah,
1: she's definitely cooler than Chip. Even though, and I say this as someone who again has been a weird person who loves true crime and horror movies i'm like misty is
0: so much cooler than Joe. yeah 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 no she's like cool cool he's yeah. like you know weird alternative dude
1: yeah but it's like he's alternative <laughs> cool <laughs> we're in yeah. a video store and i love the original texas chainsaw massacre yeah yeah i'm like honestly good for her i'm glad ricky like had a, a whole thing in the 90s
0: yeah me too Yeah, I guess I've already touched on how much I love the courtroom scene. I just love the courtroom scene so much. I think it's art. Like, it's amazing.
1: It's, like, honestly the best part of this movie. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I say that as someone who laughs through (laughs) Kathleen Turner murdering everyone. (laughs) Yeah. But it's just, it's, like, the way that it's, like, both so ridiculous, but I feel like also now I'm, like... Yeah, I mean, this just feels like this does feel like sort of like a satire of like Law and Order, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) which already is just like a ridiculous spectacle of and a farce of what a murder trial is in the first place. Right.
0: Right. So, yeah. Welcome to the personal section where we talk about sexy stuff.
1: I don't have anything here.
0: Okay, I. This is where I wanted to talk about the thruple. Um, it's not necessarily sexy, but like it was the only thing I could really put here. Although we do get a pretty incredible sex scene between the Beverly and the husband whose name I can't remember.
1: That dude who was in Law and Order for 20 years as a lawyer and then on Grace and Frankie for 10 years as a lawyer. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's why I'm like, he's a dentist? I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. jeez. Um, yeah, no, tell me more about this. Cause I'm like, now that the minute you said that I'm just like, yeah, you know, that is Chip's boyfriend, you're correct.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know, because it's like I don't know, it's just the the way that they are together all the time. I feel like when you're best friends with someone and then they start dating someone and then it's all of a sudden it's like three of you and it didn't originate as three of you you know i don't know there's always like a vibe there but like there's n- the vibe is like it's the three of us and if we didn't see Bertie and chip kiss ever i would assume that the three of them were just friends and that she was a lesbian but we do and they're clearly together and so like obviously all three of them are together it's it's either none or all i guess in my viewing of this
1: no, I 110% believe this. And I think it's also funny because Chip is played by Matthew Lillard, who also had a pretty robust career in the 90s. But he is, and spoiler alert for the movie Scream, which came out probably at least 25 years ago. But he is uh, one of the killers in the first Scream movie. But, so it's two of them. And the way that they act, everyone is, a lot of queer horror fans are like, no, Billy and Stu were together. They're lovers. They're, you know, like you just don't heterosexually decide to go on a murder spree, you know? (laughs) And it's just like, no, you guys are, you guys are queer. And I feel like something about, and I feel like when watching other things that Matthew Willard has done, I'm just like, you seem not totally Like, it seems like everything he's playing, not totally straight. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I love that for him yeah (laughs) so that's why I'm like yeah I believe that they're in a throuple wholeheartedly
0: cool yeah Yeah. those are my things Mm. also Kathleen Turner tries to be quiet while having sex the same way I do (laughs) exact same level of success
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's the where Jeff and Misty (laughs) come out of their imagine they're just like oh is <laughs> one of the funniest parts of this movie it's really good it's like don't you guys have record players or just turn the radio I, off right like...
0: i was like this is not the first time that this has happened like if she is that noisy they have lived with this their entire lives yeah but... if you
1: have televisions just turn something on real loud. yeah for real <laughs> it's,
0: really funny. it's so good <sighs> Welcome to the health and science section, where we research stuff and talk about whatever health and sciencey.
1: Um, I don't have much health and science. I do have a lot of research that I've done. Actually, covered kind of a lot of this already, which is funny. Um, so for folks to keep an eye on, there are at least eight actors in this movie that also appear in the movie Cry Baby. <laughs> I will not list them all off, but. I think probably top one is Eternal Babe, Ricky Lake, will show up here again. Also, as we said, with all of the boys clawing after her, because she's a babe. Um, And that's mostly just because, like, John Waters in general, if you watch a lot of his movies, like, he reuses not only the same people in front of the camera, but behind the camera. Yeah. Like, he's been using the same, I think, costume designer since Pink Flamingos.
0: <laughs> Mick Stoll has been in all of his movies yeah
1: i think ming soul has has yeah she's been in every
0: movie (laughs) she's the only one of the quote-unquote dreamlanders i think that has been in every single one
1: yeah i think part of that is because unfortunately she's only one of the few in front of the camera dreamlanders that's still alive because Mm. again the AIDS epidemic really took a deep blow for queer culture and art everyone anyway um but yes she's also of course in crybaby um hilariously so the band L7 is the band in the aforementioned my favorite bar scene under the name of Camel Lips, mm-hmm. <laughs> which the costuming of their outfits is so 90s alt-rock, and also I'm like, if these were, this was a real band, I would love you.
0: <laughs> For real. I mean, they are a real band.
1: Yes. But yeah, uh, so yeah, they just have, like, long, like, ratty, greasy hair, and they're all just, like, wearing bras, and then, like, leotard like tights but like with a really prominent like labia lip because it's called camel toe Mm uh just a plus plus just concept design everything so good for that scene is amazing yeah and then i've looked up why white after labor day is such a fashion crime enough that (laughs) beverly murders a otherwise very well-dressed juror from this
0: mm-hmm. who is played by Patty Hearst. Everyone, everyone should be aware of that. Who also was in cry baby.
1: Who's also in a lot of John Waters movies, uh, probably because again, John Waters loves true crime and Patty Hearst infamously a true crime headline herself.
0: Yep. So I think she's only been in John Waters movies when I was looking at it. Like that's her entire like media in front of the camera Thing is just John Waters movies because like she's not a good actor. I mean, she's good at acting in a John Waters movie, but she's not like a great actor. I think she's just there because like he thinks it's really fun to put her there, and it is, and yeah. I'm happy.
1: And she must also feel the same way. She's like, Yeah, I love showing up to john shoots. Whatever. I'm gonna play yeah. a ridiculous character.
0: <laughs> oh my god. Her <laughs> character in Crybaby is like the best. I can't wait to talk about that.
1: I also can't wait to talk about Crybaby. Yeah. Uh yes. <laughs> uh anyway so apparently according to the fa- the farmer's almanac there's a couple of different theories as to why white after labor day is a like quote-unquote fashion faux pas but mainly it comes from rich people turns out like old money rich people shit where pre-air conditioning obviously you wore a lot of light light colored clothing in the summertime and then if you're working class you wore darker colored clothing at the summertime because you're getting you're doing work, you're getting dirty. But if you're rich, you do whatever you want. Right. But then if you're wearing white after Labor Day, then it's like you're showing off that you're so wealthy, you don't need to work. You don't need to worry about getting your clothing dirty or like being warm or whatever. Um so it became a sort of old money versus new money thing. Where like old money didn't wear white after Labor Day. But like new money, by virtue of not knowing all these like unspoken waspy bullshit rules did wear white after Labor Day. So it was like a faux pas because rich people suck.
0: Hmm. Fun fact. This, the like no white after Labor Day thing is something that my like autism brand has always had a really hard time with because every time I hear it, I'm like, but it's technically always after Labor Day. <laughs> but there's never a time that's not after Labor
1: Day. And you are correct. Because <laughs> <laughs> then it's like, so then you can wear white, like what after, but like Memorial Day? So is that I, like...
0: I think it probably is between Memorial Day and Labor Day if I had to guess. I don't know. But apparently I took it to heart. You'll never catch me wearing white.
1: <laughs> not not at all related to just only because you don't wear white for Labor Day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Um, all right. We've been talking for a long time.
0: We have. Do you have any more fun facts?
1: Um, I do not. I actually somehow wormed a bunch of fun facts into the rest of this episode. <laughs>
0: I think that's great. I think a smattering of fun facts throughout is a great way to do it.
1: I do, I guess, want to say, though, that if you, listener, enjoy true crime, but maybe have not thought critically about true crime, that you should definitely listen to the podcast Spectacles whole season about true crime, which I found very illuminating and is part of the reason why I'm like, ooh, actually, mm, there's a lot of dubious shit about true crime. So I recommend listening to that. Not, not campy, but informative.
0: <laughs> yeah, cool. Because
1: we have a kind of camp where you can learn and have fun.
0: <laughs> we sure do. Cool. Thank you all so much for attending your first week of summer camp with Hashtag Ruthless next Episode We will be talking about 1996, five somethings Batman and Robin, aka the best Batman movie. You should check the show notes for all of the things and don't forget to leave us a review. And until next time, Girl
1: Boss, Gaslight, Gatekeep,
0: Pussy Willow. <laughs> I tried to predict and be ready for what word four was, and I was not prepared. <laughs> I'm like, there's clearly no other word that could be in the last word of this episode. Amazing.